Alan Jacobs is a professor of literature at Baylor University in Waco, and you may remember me referring to uh, books that he has written in the past. He's just released a new book. It's entitled, In the Year of Our Lord, 1943, which is a, a funky title, right? What it refers to is he documents the lives of five authors, some of them poets, all of whom are Christians, who right in the middle of World War II were beginning to ask themselves this question, how shall society, if it ever recovers from the Nazi terror, how shall it rebuild? Where shall we go from the ashes, the ruins of a society brought to its knees by the most pernicious tyranny ever known to man in modern history? And especially as Christians, those he documents in the book, they're asking themselves their quest the question, how may our Christian faith inform the rebuilding of that society? One of the authors that Alan Jacobs documents in that book is the poet T.S. Eliot. And in 1939, T.S. Eliot had just written a book that was published by Faber and Faber called The Idea of a Christian Society in which he began to outline some of his thoughts about what it would mean for a Christian faith to inform the, the sowing, the seed of goodness in whatever channels of influence they may have, and especially in the channels of education. But on an August evening in 1939, T.S. Eliot gets a knock at his door at his publisher's office, and it's of a friend, and that friend is named George Barker, who was also a poet. And they began to talk at length about what it would mean to be a Christian in the midst of the growing onslaught of terror. The Nazis have already taken Prague. It's only a matter of weeks before all of Europe is embroiled in what we know as World War II. And after they talk for a while, George Barker walks to the window and looks out upon the evening in London and says, if not to himself, to his friend T.S. Eliot, we have so little time. Given the moment that they found themselves in, he was, I think in so many words, asking the question by uttering that reality, how shall we act deliberately now? How shall we act resolutely? How shall we act with wisdom in days like this? Given the brevity of time that they had. Kids, you think you're going to live forever. Ask anybody who's older than you if time has gone slow or fast. And most of them, if not all of them, will say, quickly. We have so little time. So little time to act with wisdom, with care, with deliberateness, with resolve. For four months, we've been listening to the Proverbs give us a window into wisdom, a window into where life will be found. And given the brevity of all our lives, with so little time, the question I want to ask is, what now? How do we end this series on wisdom from the Proverbs? How do we put a bow on this? What concluding thought can we bring to it? Given the brevity of life, with so little time, what now? I think there's a passage in chapter 3 of Proverbs that maybe gets us to the heart of that moment. We have so little time. Now what? Let's listen. If you're able, we're in chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Stand if you can. Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 13. 
Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. This is the reassuring wisdom, wise word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Given the short time that we have, I think the passage is saying three things to us. And the first is this. We have so little time to waste missing the blessing of wisdom. We have so little time to waste the time on missing the blessing of wisdom. The first six verses of the passage are essentially making one point. You would be a fool not to hear or to heed what you find in that book, in that compilation of ideas that speak of God's way of seeding truth and wisdom in the world. Whatever you think valuable, and everybody in this room has a list of things that you already consider very valuable to your body and to your soul, whatever that might be of value, the point of those first six verses is this. There is nothing of greater value than the wisdom that he's given to us. The silver and the gold to which he refers, the, the things that we adorn with art, the things that we move into buildings to, to give them a certain awe about them, they are glorious in themselves. They are valuable in themselves, but they are nothing compared to the wisdom that you might have in order to live. The jewels of which it speaks, the, those very things that, that, that make us feel big and, and beautiful and, and blessed, the, the jewels that we adorn our bodies with, as valuable as they may be to us, they are nothing compared to the wisdom to be found from what we find in this book. Why, though? Why is wisdom of utmost value? Why is wisdom that thing that you ought to seek more than any of those other things that have a value in themselves? Why? To borrow one metaphor of one theologian, it is because wisdom is best understood as the bedrock of reality. Bedrock is that stuff that you sink the piers of a building into in order that it might not fall. And in the same way, wisdom is the truest thing, the most real thing, the thing that you can most depend on. It is the substance upon which you want to build a life. And there are all sorts of choices upon which you might build a life. Wisdom is that thing that we might best think of as bedrock. The thing that will not shift the only thing worth building a life on. And for the last four months, we have tried to surface all different aspects of that bedrock. 
We talked about wisdom for the use of our tongues, the use of our words, and we discovered or we were reminded, we were reminded of the fact that words are potent, that they can be weapons, but they can also be a bomb. That, that words in themselves, they, they actually have a purpose. They're, they're not just to convey information, they're to give voice to truth that's going to endure. They give voice to truth that God delights in. That's what our words are for. Imagine how your life would be different if you had believed that sooner. What's true of words is also true of marital intimacy. We said that marital intimacy is is actually an impulse too strong to trifle with. We found in chapter 5 that it is a gift too beautiful to neglect. And we also found that the only way you will find freedom in the expression of marital intimacy is when it is in submission to something far greater than itself. Oh, friends, imagine how life would be different if we believed that sooner. The bedrock of wisdom with respect to our words, the bedrock of wisdom with respect to marital intimacy is the same thing we talked about a few weeks ago when it came to envy. That envy is not something that other people do. Envy is something that we all struggle with. And it is that dark impulse, not only to long to have what somebody else has, but to wish that they didn't have it. And we've all felt it. And some of us have even confessed it. But when it comes over us, the wisdom that we found in these texts was that there's such a futility to it. It never solves anything. And the only way to displace it is actually to find something of greater value than what we long, we wish we had, and what we wish the other person didn't have. In other words, the only way to displace envy is to worship. And that is the bedrock of wisdom. What's true of our words is true of marital intimacy, is true of envy, and like what we said last week also, there is bedrock wisdom to be found when it comes to the expression of anger. And what we heard in multiple passages is that there is a place for righteous anger because righteous anger is itself an attempt to defend something in love for what is of great value. And that if we will refuse to be angry at all costs, we are actually siphoning away any ability to express our love or to be sustained by it. There's a place for anger, but there's also a whole host of problems with it too that we're not, if we're not, care of, we're not careful of, we can so deceive ourselves and wreak a kind of disaster we never have dreamt of. And therefore, the only way to purify that anger so that goodness and anger always go together is to see our anger in the context of the way God deals with his in each one of those dimensions, in each attempt to surface a little bit of that wisdom that we might hear it, we discover that that is true stuff. That is real stuff. That is the heavy stuff. That is the glorious stuff upon which you can build a life. It is the bedrock. And we have so little time to try to sink the piers of our soul into anything other than what we found here. But while bedrock is a very powerful and apt metaphor for talking about the nature of wisdom. I actually haven't referred to the one thing, the most potent image in the entire passage we've read. And it's what you heard there in verse 18 about what wisdom is. She, Lady Wisdom, is a tree of life. What a curious association. 
why go there? Um, kids, you ever climb a tree? Kids, you ever build a tree house? Ever live in a tree house? Then, then you know why you go there, right? Maybe you've never thought about it. Why do we get in tree houses? Why do we climb trees? Because you're above everybody. You, you see with a perspective that you can't see from terra firma. You are kind of like over them. You feel you have this sort of kind of power. You have the high ground. You could throw stuff at them. <laughs> up there is power. Up there is perspective. But up there, you know what? There's, there's a refuge. There's a, there's a kind of place of security there that you kind of maybe don't feel when you're on the ground because you're on up there and nobody can see you and everybody's kind of looking straight ahead and they're not looking up and you're like, nobody knows I'm here. This is cool. I like being to myself. I like that refuge. It's a good place. It's a life. It's a tree that brings life. And while there is something to be said about that nature of being in a tree, do you really know why the author of Proverbs is referencing that? You heard it at the beginning of this service. The only other instance of a reference to the tree of life explicitly in the Old Testament happens there in Genesis chapter 2. God sets the tree of life in the middle of the garden, he forms the man, and there, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. Maybe this is why the sage in Proverbs 3 is bringing up a tree of life. Because what is that tree referring to? It's not just a tree. It's a representation of God's presence. It's a representation of God's provision. It's a representation that he means for on this earth for there to be life and vitality and goodness. He has not left us marooned. So this reference here in chapter 3 in Proverbs is out to say, wisdom hearkens to that. If you pursue wisdom, you are pursuing the very foundations of reality. What you're doing is you're pursuing God. I've already said, we have so little time to waste time missing the blessing of wisdom, but I think the second thing this text is out to tell us is that we have so little time trying to seek wisdom apart from trying to seek God. That there is no seeking wisdom detached from a search for the Lord and why do I say that? Because of what you heard in verses 19 and 20 again. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Wisdom was not just an idea. Wisdom was in the hands of God a tool. He built the very fabric of reality upon wisdom. Wisdom was not just the, sort of this thing that kind of came along later that he published in a book. Wisdom was what he used, the very stuff by which all things find their origin and their being. And therefore, there is no search for wisdom apart from the search for God. Not according to this passage. So here's the thing. What if you try? What if you try to separate your search for wisdom apart from your search for God? What if you try to, if you will, sort of metaphorically speaking, um, grow your own tree of life? Find your own place of refuge. Build your own tower of strength and power. 
What if you go there? I want to show you a scene from a film that is aptly entitled The Tree of Life. And if you watch that film, it is more like an art piece than it is a story, although it is a story. And it takes place in Waco in the 1950s. It's about a young family. But it also is a story that goes as far back into primordial history with dinosaurs and all that. And you're thinking, what is this guy thinking? What is he saying? It's by the director Terrence Malick. The story is actually more autobiographical than you can imagine. And it is a story that takes place in the context of tragedy. And in that story, with all of these multiple references to trees that just kind of keep showing up at every place because he's out to make a point, there is a father. And that father, played by Brad Pitt, is the embodiment of wisdom. He does all things well. He shows diligence in every corner. He understands everything with great detail. There is nothing that he leaves out. And he also has an appreciation for things beautiful. He, he not only is the, a plant manager in the sleepy town of Waco in the 1950s, he, he plays the piano and invites one of his sons to, to play guitar with him alongside it. So he's a very complicated fellow. He's in the embodiment of wisdom and is the embodiment of the kind of expression you see in the whole book of Proverbs. He is a father that wants to imbue his children with the wisdom that he's received. And we think, what a great story. What a great father. But what you see in the movie is a man who has great wisdom, but at times when his children don't listen and things don't work, the most unrighteous anger and harshness takes him over. And he acts with great terror upon his kids, upon his wife, upon his neighbors. And in this scene, which goes about three and a half minutes long, this father is having a realization, a little epiphany about what it has been to live a life seeking wisdom apart from something, seeking something greater. We've kept the subtitles in there because he almost speaks breathlessly for a minute. And every single image has a point, even to the condition of the plants that you're about to see him harvesting with his son. Sit with it. Watch it. Because I was great. A big man. I'm nothing. Look, the glory around us. Trees and birds. 
I've drawn a zilch. holes in his plants. He's got holes in his plans. He's got a hole in his whole approach to finding life. And you hear him say, oh man, I've done it all right. I was going to be loved because I was going to be great. But he missed something profound. He missed the grandeur. He missed the glory all around him. And he calls himself a fool. And so he is. And so we are. That if we try to separate this search for the meaning of life, the wisdom of the world apart from the one who authored all things, then we too will set ourselves up for a profound disappointment when we do everything right and we cut the grass well and we water it properly and we learn how to play music and we do everything right at work and then everything falls apart. And we will miss the glory. What the Proverbs are out to tell us there in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, is that wisdom is more than an ethic. It is more than a provision of guidance. Wisdom has a face. Wisdom is a person. By wisdom, the Lord seated the earth because God himself is wisdom. And that should sound maybe vaguely familiar because in John chapter 1, 
when it speaks of how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That word there for word, that's referring to Jesus. And that word there for word is the Greek word logos. And from the Greek philosophy, tradition from which that word is harvested, it meant this. Logos is wisdom. Logos is the meaning of life. And therefore, this wisdom to which we aspire, which has all these facets about marital intimacy and envy and anger and diligence and caring for the poor, all of that wisdom has a face. And it is why Paul himself says, Jesus Christ is our wisdom that undergirds all things. And what was crazy for the Greeks to hear when John writes his word is that this wisdom, this meaning of life that was baked into reality, that wisdom lived in Jesus. Which was a scandal to everybody who heard it. Do you know why that's good news for you? Do you know why that's good news for me? If Jesus is wisdom with a face, then this is what's true of wisdom. This wisdom died for fools and didn't wait for us to become wise before he died for fools. He didn't wait to love us until we showed ourselves wise. He loved us before we were wise. And with his dying breath, he forgave. And in that is his wisdom, his confirmation of the reality of all things, his confirmation of the reality of our true hearts, his confirmation of how we needed him in all things. And he died for fools, that he might make us wise, but that even when we cling and prefer our foolishness, his love does not change. We have so little time to waste missing the blessing of wisdom, but we have so little time to miss the fact that wisdom has a face and that he died for fools. We need wisdom with a face. Because even after the worst thing we've done, that wisdom with a face covers us and allows us to stand again and discover the way of wisdom once more. And that means one last thing then. We have so little time to waste missing the blessing. We have so little time thinking that the search for wisdom is separate from the search for God. But thirdly, we have so little time to take refuge in what is no confidence. Look, if my cat gets chased by a dog, does that ever happen? That cat can run into a bush or that cat can climb a tree. And one of those would provide that cat no confidence. It's the bush. Cat's got to get higher. That cat wants to live and see another day. That cat will climb the tree. That, life, that tree will be a tree of life for the cat. And that tree will be a confidence in which to take refuge. And the last four verses of this passage is out to tell us that wisdom is a source of security. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you'll not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. It's why we read Psalm 121 together. It is this promise that in wisdom there is a kind of security. And you hear that and I hear that and we think, uh, 
aren't there a lot of wise people to whom pain has come? Uh, yeah. Is this sort of a uh, promise of confidence, maybe setting us up, up self, setting this kid up for disappointment and disillusion? Well, consider who it's coming from. It's coming from a Jew. And the Jews knew a few things about what it means to suffer. The Jews lived in their own, if you will, gated community in Jerusalem, but a gated community that got overrun by any number of marauding emperors and armies at the drop of a hat. And so it's not a pie-in-the-sky, Pollyanna kind of way of saying that there is a confidence in wisdom. It is this what he's saying. Oh, this world is painful. Oh, this world is full of terror. But you want to compound that terror? You want to make it worse? Ignore me. Ignore me. There is a security to be found even in a world that is fraught with danger by listening to the wisdom that has come. Any of us can suffer. Any of us can experience tragedy. But it is by this wisdom that provides us a level of protection that is preferable to its opposite. Why can it be so confident and why should you believe there's any confidence in listening to that wisdom for a source of your protection? Because of the only other reference to the tree of life in all of the Bible. Yes, the tree of life has one explicit reference to the tree of life in Genesis chapter 2, but the only other place that the tree of life is referred to explicitly is the other passage you heard this morning, and it's at the book of Revelation. And in chapter 22, you heard it read. The angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. The reference to the tree of life surely speaks to the beginning and the foundation of all things, but the tree of life also speaks to the eternity and the endurance of all things. And that's why we say that this is the essence of wisdom. This is the thing that we must contend with. This is the thing that we have to get because we have so little time to grapple with that truth. Because when that tree of life reappears, it will be next to a throne, and on that throne will be God and the Lamb. And that tree will bear fruit and bring healing and nourish peace. And that Lamb, who is Jesus, at the end of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, you may remember what he says. He speaks of it in an analogy. He says, you can build your house on sand, or you can build your house on the rock. And listening to his words... And wisdom is a life built on the rock. Why? Why does he end his sermon there? Because of what's coming. What's coming for us all. What's coming for every member of the human race. And that is a storm. I hope it's not an oversimplification to say this. But in our cultural moment, the one thing that a lot of people are thinking is the most important thing you can nail down is your identity as the culture offers you several variables and possibilities. 
who you are, what you are, how you roll, whatever it might be. This world, as we speak, right now, puts at the top of the list the most important thing that you and I can grapple with is, who are you? The Lord Jesus would say, with all humility and clarity, that is not the greatest thing that you might contend with. Do you know what captures that sentiment that we find ourselves breathing and swimming in every day? Don't be offended. I hope I'm not insulting your intelligence, but Elsa gets us there. In that song, she sings, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. It's the anthem to our moment. Because the most important thing you and I can ever think about is who are we as the culture offers the alternatives? Friends, Jesus humbly suggests that the most important thing that you and I can grapple with is not our identity. The most important thing that you and I can grapple with is what are you going to do when suffering comes? What are you going to do when it hits the fan? What are you going to do when pain hits you square in the face? What are you going to do when the storm comes? His name was Donald. And he was a male dancer. One of those male dancers. And then Jesus comes into his life. And a lot of things start to shift for Don. And I met him about 10 years ago. But I went to his house when he was dying of cancer. And I sat at his bedside within days of his death and I kissed him on the forehead because I knew that in that moment I probably would not see him again in this earth. And in that moment, what didn't matter was his political identification. What didn't matter was whether he was gay and had a partner. What didn't matter in that moment was whether he owned a a costume shop up the road from which I had bought a wonderful purple vest that allowed me to act like I was Bilbo that Halloween. What mattered in that moment was what would hold the hand of his heart when a little bit of hell came to his doorstep? And the question that he's having to wrestle with then is the question we all are going to have to wrestle with at some point. And at that point, all those questions about identity Really? The Lord Jesus speaks to us humbly and says, build your life here on what I have said. Because you can build your life on a set of circumstances that you think will be impervious and then you will be mistaken. Or you can build your life on a whole set of ideas that you think this is my identity, this is who I am, this is what I want the world to know and then it happens. Or we can build our life on a promise that there is goodness and that love prevails because there's a tree of life. Oh, friends, we have so little time before all of these things happen, but if I may flip that idea a little bit more, we have so little time until we get to see the tree of life. We have so little time until we get to see the one face-to-face that we might be known to know him as we are fully known. We have so little time until that becomes our reality and we begin to see by truth and we don't have to walk by faith anymore but by sight. That's, that's good news. This wisdom has a face and he will gladly suffer and die for fools. 
But until that time, in the brief, and brev, brev, the brief moment that we find ourselves in, he invites us to take refuge in his wisdom. And so, I would encourage you to keep coming back to these words. Several of you have come up after one of these sermons and said, man, that hit me right at the right moment. And I would suggest to you that it's amazing how much, if you just go back to the text every once in a while, something comes up that was there at just the right time. It's the nature of wisdom. It never gets old. But when you come looking for wisdom, remember that that wisdom has a face. And then in love, he died for fools. And that's good news. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? We long to know that there is a bedrock. And many times we feel as if there is nothing beneath us but sand. We want to know that there is a tree of life that establishes all things and to which all things take their cue, and to which all things are headed. We want to believe that, and we confess the frailty of our faith, sir. We would ask that you would deal clearly but gently with us, that you might help us to know wisdom, that we might be able to face whatever pain we might know this day or in the days to come and discover that there is something even stronger than death. Father, where we are frail, we ask that you would meet us. Where we are full of ourselves, we ask that you would meet us. And we would pray that there is pleasantness and peace, knowing that your wisdom is wisdom that comes not to us as a code, but as a person who loves. And on account of all of that, I ask that you would now help us all to pray as your son taught us to pray when he said, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.